I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. How are you today? Hey, Abby. Great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Just working from home and recording this from my living room today. We are having one of the most unseasonably warm stretches in Minnesota that I've ever experienced. Um, it is June and June, you know, we had frost on the ground, like, I don't know, 10 days ago. And uh, it's been over 90 every single day. And we don't know what to do. Like, it's like, what what just happened? Because one of my coworkers, Sheena, is from Austin. And I said, this would be like 120 for you in Austin. Like, it just, it's like, what is this? This is crazy. So we're all struggling, but, uh, you know. I'm not going to complain. It's it's June. It's summer. Yeah, it's disgustingly hot in Kansas City right now, <laughs> especially for June. It, I think it's been like in the 90s every single day and just like humid as you can possibly imagine. It's it's pretty gross. So, well, fortunately, we don't have the really bad humidity. It's been hot and I, I don't know, a couple nights this week playing softball with the girls and got home and just like, oh my gosh, I, I, for, I'm worn out. Like just, you know, I'm like a usually stay up late kind of guy and I had to go to bed early because I'm like, I'm just drained from this heat, but eh, not going to complain. Yeah, it should, it should pass in a few weeks. It's, I, I think it's better that it is hot than it being cold. So I know that you probably disagree with that <laughs> opinion, but that's that's a hill that I'm going to die on. Well, I've been trying to get my boat fixed since last summer, and I'm like days away. I'm, I'm maybe like 10 days away from having it fixed. Everyone's like, I wish we had it now because it's so nice. But yeah, soon. Do you remember what boat stands for? Uh, it's like bust out another thousand. I wish it was yeah. only a thousand for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I bought this boat and then uh, blew it up. And uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. I'm learning a lot about engines and a lot about things I never knew anything about. So it's it's fun. This weekend, I'm wiring a whole speaker system into the boat and, and like extra lights. And it'll be blinged out when my motor gets back from the remanufacturing place. Nice. So it'll be the party boat. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the <laughs> little family party boat. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, well today we are going to be covering a very timely article that was published in Vice by Aaron Gordon. It is called Tearing Down Highways Won't Fix American Cities. So there's been a lot of buzz recently around the idea of targeted freeway removal. The feds are proposing $20 billion in infrastructure spending to be allocated towards this effort. And the Congress for the New Urbanism just last week released their annual report of freeways without futures. Full disclosure, I nominated Kansas City's North Loop, which was included in the report. So I'm very excited to see that highlighted. You know, in general, removing segments of freeways 
has become very mainstream, I think, because it's a relatively easy idea for people to get on board with. As a society, we've become, I think, more aware to what's been lost during the past 60 years due to freeway expansion. We know that these efforts led by federal, state, local policymakers targeted minority communities using eminent domain and demolishing properties and infrastructure was designated and planned to really reinforce segregation, which kneecapped remaining property owners and, and their ability to build wealth. We are also becoming more aware that the costs associated with freeway expansion make it very much not worth doing. There's a growing recognition that the country really can't afford to maintain all of its infrastructure and urban freeways are an unproductive public liability that undermine the social and economic health of everything around them. So on fiscal grounds alone, it's often quite difficult to even justify reinvesting in these urban freeway segments. So to me, it's very promising to see that freeway removal has become more mainstream. However, as the title of the article states, freeway removal alone is not going to solve many of the looming problems that we face. Uh, the question now is, I think, less whether tearing down freeways is really a good idea, but as the article brings up, the question is what we actually do with the land when the infrastructure has been removed. And it's important for cities to start considering this because the same top-down mechanisms that segregated our city in the first place and caused so much harm could just be reinforced. So Chuck, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on freeway removal from a strong town's perspective. Is this something that you see as, as a positive thing? Is this something that you have a lot of opinions on? Oh, I don't have many opinions on many things. <laughs> yeah, you're very, you're, yeah, you are not very opinionated. I keep opinionated. my opinions to myself, yeah. Uh -huh. No, um, it's, the, the thing that I really liked about this Vice article um, was, you know, th them, them giving props to CNU as being like a leader in this when it was heretical and not cool. Because I, I remember the first time I saw their highway, you know, Highways Without Futures report. And I, I remember thinking like, I agree with this, but it's crazy. Like this is a crazy idea. No, no one's ever going to go for this. And the reality is that not only have places gone for it. I mean, we've had two major highways torn down, and there's a third one coming down. But but there's a growing, you know, a, a growing push to see this happen in cities all over the country, and it would be a great thing. Even you know, the highway that runs through the middle of my city is not elevated. It's not going to get torn down. But to have that like reconfigured to be a, a, four blocks of a street instead of a highway would, would have just huge, huge positive benefits for the community. So this idea that once was heretical and now is, I, I wouldn't say completely mainstream yet, but mainstream enough to where it can be brought up in polite quarters and people will talk about it and debate it as a real idea is, is a huge step forward. Clearly, I think, you know, the problems that Vice lays out and I, I kind of was expecting a, a little bit harder piece for them based on the headline. But, you know, the idea that tearing down the highway alone is not enough to me is kind of self-evident, but it's, it, it is the first step, right? It is like, 
the first step towards fixing these places is getting rid of like the knife through the heart. I mean, it's like removing the knife is not enough. Removing the knife from your gut is not enough. You actually have to like patch it up and heal and do other things. Totally agree. But like removing the knife is like a prerequisite to that healing taking place. It's not going to take place without it. So applause, applaud to you for getting Kansas City on this list. And, uh, you know, I, I think you can look at Kansas City as a, as a case study. There's actually people seriously talking about this now in Kansas City as something that would be a, a benefit for the city. And, and I think, you know, I look at Minneapolis where there's serious talk about this uh, and, and, and many other cities. Um, these are conversations we need to have. And, and I think instead of, you know, having this long process of like, how do we get a billion dollars to build this light rail line or expand this highway or do this thing to make things for commuters easier. I think the idea of tearing down these highways should be where the bulk of our energy is going. Yeah, it's, it's so cool to read the report that came out um, to see Kansas City and so many other cities highlighted in that report and to look back at the previous years and just so, so many different places that are bringing this issue to light and also doing their own their own studies to see if this is feasible in these various places and kind of imagining what could take this place uh, because it is such it's such an extreme public liability and it so much undermines everything that's going on around it in a really um, unfortunate way. Part of the reason I think freeway removal has just recently become very much mainstream and built so much recent momentum is because of that historical context that we talked about and its narrators who have been, I think, very successful in describing why the development of freeways was done in a way that really targeted people often in, in racist ways. And the people who built these freeways are currently gone, right? They, they're all dead now, but the remaining segments of the physical infrastructure are this looming reminder of these bad actors. And they continue to undermine the health of everything around them while enabling commuters to drive through as quickly as possible. So the removal, the removal of these portions of freeway, I think would send a really clear message about how we choose to invest in ourselves and our communities but as the article points out, I think that they had a quote that said, highways are, are racist only insofar as the people institutions who built them and simply removing freeways because they are racist doesn't necessarily stop the same top-down institutional mechanisms from enabling reuse of the area in a way that's equally as harmful and extractive. And the article makes this point around, you know, around why the reuse of land that freeways currently make up will be this major challenge that we're facing because of the different interests. And and I think the success will come out of whether or not as communities we're able to balance those various interests and really be intentional about what we're doing with, with all the space that comes out of this. Let me, and this is, this is itself heretical, I do agree with you that the conversation that we're having in this country on race has actually uh, allowed the, the conversation on highway removal to, to move ahead. But let's disentangle them for a second, because like I've pointed out many times, 
you can go to cities where there's there's not a lot of racial disparity. A point to Salt Lake City has one, and they still have highways through the middle of the city. This was a policy that certainly intersects a lot with racism and, and, and racist action, but it's not one that that was a requirement. Um, you know, here in my hometown of Brainerd, I've said many times we have a lot of diversity in our, you know, the sense that we have different Scandinavian people. We have Swedes and, and Norwegians and Finns all living together in one community. What happened was the neighborhoods that were poor were the neighborhoods that got the crappy infrastructure and the bad design and the neighborhoods that were wealthy and connected somehow have nice streets with street trees and sidewalks and, and the things that people would like. Th this is what we see in, in, in cities is that, you know, the, the neighborhoods that were in a sense disenfranchised or disempowered or did not have the, the clout within these top-down systems that were going about the country building these interstates, uh, those were the neighborhoods that got plowed under. Those were the neighborhoods that got bisected. Those are the neighborhoods that got run over. There's a high correlation there between minority neighborhoods and that lack of power. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think the important thing is to recognize that we can be a country of completely non-racist, wonderful, uh, you know, caring, loving people. But if we're going to use these same top-down processes to build these places back once we take the highways out, uh, we're going to wind up with very similar results, regardless of what our intentions are. I think this question that they raise is an interesting one. You know, what what happens next? What what does happen next? And the series that we wrote on Kansas City had an article that I wrote about, uh, it was about neighborhood revitalization, although we did tie it into the reparations conversation, uh, to have this, you know, very specific conversation about how you take places and, and make them into not opportunities for Wall Street investors and condo developers and the like, but how do you make them places where the person who lives in Kansas City, who wants to make something of themselves, who doesn't have the opportunity now today to act on that, actually has now a platform and an outlet for that that progress, the way that people a hundred years ago would have had coming to a place like Kansas City. And it involves things like smaller lots and a little bit of like startup investment. And instead of doing TIF for the big condo unit, doing some type of rebate system for people to get started with smaller homes. A lot of this stuff is not ribbon cutting-esque or sexy or, you know, all blinged out. And I, I think that one of the things we're going to have to struggle with and resist is this idea that tearing down a highway is merely creating like fertile ground for the big blinged out top down series of projects that we like to fund and like to do. And instead is like a, a, a garden of fresh land ready to be cultivated uh, by, you know, small players that can start at a scale and then incrementally build up and create wealth for themselves and, and for the neighborhood. It's a, it's a different model. And I, I kind of feel like that's what Vice was essentially trying to get at here in this piece is that if, if you're really concerned about the racist ramifications, you can't have this debate between inclusionary zoning and gentrification. I mean, that's the wrong place to be having this discussion. The discussion needs to be, is this going to be bottom up and, and evolutionary or is it going to be top down 
and very rigid and structured. And if it's the latter, you're going to wind up in the same place of regret. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of concerns that the Department of Transportations are essentially just going to hand off the land to developers once freeway segments are decommissioned without much of a plan in terms of how to reuse the land in a way that actually supports the community's interests and other opportunities that are there. I think that when people see a lot of land, they kind of put the copy paste condo building on it and say, you know, magically, this is what needs to go here. And there's there's not really a lot of like organic thought and and conversation around it. It's land right in like the prime spot too, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly. the thing is like, the, it, it, I think people hearing me are saying, well, would you start with a little shack in the middle of the core downtown? Um, not necessarily, but but I do think that we need to talk about like the scale and the ownership, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think in that vein, you have these valid grievances that get up, get brought up by people because, you know, if, if you're just going to hand off the land to just be developed all at once to a finished state, um, that's going to be pretty frustrating to people who were kind of overlooked when when this was when the freeway portions were built in the first place. I, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, one way that we thought about how you might reuse this this kind of space in Kansas City, because we actually thought about what would happen if you didn't utilize this space as private land at all and didn't develop it at all? Because, you know, one way we thought about it is, is what if you just kept it public? And, you know, previous studies in the North Loop area explored opening up the land for redevelopment. This would be 30 additional acres of redevelopable land in addition to like the 60 acres of redevelopable land in the downtown area because there's so many parking lots and things that are underutilized to begin with. So there's a little bit of a question for us around why would you add additional land to develop when there's not already that happening? And what if instead you kept the land public and made it into some kind of central park or something that's really the opposite of a huge public liability, although you need to find a way to maintain a park? But what if you flip that to make it like a value beacon rather than something that is so extractive like a highway is and and instead kind of allowed that to be the beacon that promotes reuse of all the existing development opportunities, all those small parcels that are parking lots to be redeveloped and kind of allow that to build the momentum. I think if that were the case, and I, I like that vision. I mean, I think I can see that that I can see that vision having like a greenway and uh, having an area that would be like a central park. I, I think there has to be an understanding that, that that would not be an amenity in a sense for the existing neighborhoods. What it would be is is a magnet. It would be like a investment magnet and and, and kind of, synonymous with what you're doing then is having a strategy that says the way we pay for this and the way we make this great is by having the neighborhoods around it become far more intense. You don't have Central Park without, you know, the, the way it is today and the configuration is today without Manhattan and without, you know, the intense development around it. I mean, that's part of the interplay with it and it's part of why it works. I had to laugh years ago. I think it was it was Lincoln, Nebraska. It might have been Omaha. 
that had this plan to build like the high line, you know, and I'm like, no, the high line <laughs> works because it is in New York. Like you can't just take that design and drop it in. And I think you have in Kansas city, a little bit of the chicken and egg uh, discussion, you know, what comes first, like the nice park or the, the neighborhood that supports it. I, I think if you were going to go in that direction or if any city was going to go in that direction, you would have to simultaneously be committed to evolving all of those neighborhoods within walking distance of it to be, you know, many multiples uh, more intense than what they are today. And that would be beautiful. I mean, that would be a great, great outcome. That would be fantastic. What you couldn't do is I think what we're inclined to do, which is say, all right, I live within four blocks of this right now, or I have a place, you know, near here. So what I want is like a skating rink and a park and a pond in the middle of town. And then I don't want my neighborhood to change at all. That would be, I, I think, one of the worst outcomes you could have. Yeah, and I think that that's something that is kind of touched on in this article around what what happens with the land after the freeway is removed, whether it is developed or not, it's, it is going to be a change, right? And I think that there's going to be some pushback that comes along with any kind of change for some neighborhoods, even if you're taking something as extractive as an interstate and trying to put something else in its place. One of the big challenges, I think, is that when you remove a segment of a freeway, it's a huge amount of space. And so I think most people go into this kind of, uh, the, the first thing that we think about is we should just have this big master plan development, bring the big players in town, build the condos, build the big mixed-use buildings, the block-sized buildings. And the idea of breaking up, breaking up all of that space into small bits is really something that, that is not seen as, as valid to people who are really championing these schemes. And, and, and I wonder if it, if it is something that, that cities could really get serious about and, and really consider opportunities to actually maybe give land away for free and set up the infrastructure um, as a way of, of promoting new paths to building wealth for people who are living in communities, for people who want to live in a community but maybe can't get access to what is currently on the market. I think cities, cities really could have a tremendous amount of value that they can offer if this land were passed on to them and if they had something that they could, some kind of program that they could uh, establish that would actually be helpful and address wealth building opportunities that, that previously were not there. Clearly, I think there's there's nuance here, right? So if, if you get out to a neighborhood like yours, uh, I don't think the master builder approach makes any sense. I, I think taking and, and putting it up into small lots and, and making them available at, you know, for even like you suggest, for free to people who have long been in the in the neighborhood, but have you know been disadvantaged for whatever past policy. Like I, I can see a lot of ways that you can set this up to help people get a head start and help them basically rebuild a neighborhood and reconnect a neighborhood and and, and establish something that would be a, a benefit to everyone. In the center of the city, though, where you get into these neighborhoods that are already more mature and more intense. Then some nuance may be warranted. I mean, maybe there are some places in there where a combination of, uh, you know, the 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 large development and the public park 
and you know some amenity with some nuance and, and some small players. I, I think you know the city as master developer here, the DOT as master developer is a disaster because they're just they're certainly not set up to do this right. The city as master developer, I almost feel like would be likewise kind of suspect because they're also not really set up to do this. But I think that the city as like a steward of doing this in a different way, you know, bringing in some type of a planning group, establishing that, get, having them, you know, create some different alternatives, having a community conversation. I, I do think that this is the kind of thing where because of the scale of it, even some of the traditional planning methods that we kind of poo-poo around here at times uh, might be more applicable just because of the, the the sheer scale of something like this. Clearly, when we get to a neighborhood level, I think a lot of those things are misapplied. And I think, you know, getting out and understanding people's experiences is far more important than having some master plan process. But in something like this, I think, you know, splitting it up and, and going through something like that would provide a lot of value. If it were me, I can tell you what I would do. I would, uh, I would call up DPZ and I would say, come in and figure this out for me. And you know what? You'd get something genius and beautiful and uh, enduring. But, you know, that's the whole kind of vision behind the, the CNU stuff to begin with, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you were to bring DPZ to look at these areas, I think you would get a much more creative approach that is different from kind of this top-down master plan approach that I think a lot of people, it will be the first approach that most people think of when looking at not just Kansas City, but many different areas that are that are actually moving forward with removing portions of their freeway. And I'm excited about this, this that it, this is becoming mainstream because if freeway does become, if freeway removal does become more feasible for cities, this could present one of the most important urban planning challenges, I think, of the century because it's, you know, it, it, it's a, a huge change and it is, it is the type of change that could be just as drastic as, um, you know, building the freeways in the, yeah. in the first place. Well, there's a there's a body of knowledge and practice that needs to be built here, right? That doesn't exist today within the toolkit. So I was in New Orleans with uh, Andres Duani and uh, I, I, was Victor Dover there? I think he was. There was a group of uh, new urbanist next geners and we were we were there doing some other stuff and 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 wound up walking through kind of some of the core neighborhoods and we walked by one of these highways and and that was kind of the first i mean i was aware of like the remove highway thing and 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 found it kind of novel but that was the first time i got from people who were really great urban designers like standing there looking at it and then having recited to me a vision of like what this would look like and how it would be redeveloped and and what kind of physical things on the ground you would do from a design standpoint to make it work. And I was just blown away. I was blown away by the genius of it. And I, I also recognized right there that like my understandings and my toolbox, like my um, capacity as a, as a planner, as an engineer, as a person who works in cities, was too limited to actually be able to, to envision and do that work. Um, I think that it's an exciting time because not only are these opportunities, I think, going to present themselves, but I think there's an opportunity within these professions 
to actually change and reform and modify our approaches to not only create a whole new body of understanding and work, but to do it in like a humble, iterative kind of way that actually builds value instead of being part of a, you know, machine that replicates the same thing over and over. I'm I'm doing the final copy. The, the the final copy out of my next book is done and I'm reading it. And before we got on here, I just went through a, a, a section on you know, what what it's like to design a road as an engineer. And I I I draw a parallel between you know, you think you go to school to be a painter and then you get out of school and find out that your job is just to put, you know, printer ink in the in the printer that prints out copies of past masters. I mean, you you wind up thinking that you're going to do something creative and genius where you can apply all these thoughts in your head and, and all these things that you've learned and you wind up just copying past practice. To me, there's an exciting place here where we can actually unleash a, a generation of creative, thoughtful people, again, with a little touch of humility added into it, uh, to go out and work with people and work with neighborhoods and solve problems in innovative ways. And, and we really haven't had that kind of thing, you know, outside of really the new urbanism, in, in my opinion, for quite a long time. I love that. And I'm really excited about the prospect of the practice changing in that way because I think people are ready for it. I think people really want to see city building efforts that are very much bottom up. And I think that that will make it much more creative and we won't necessarily see the copy paste uh, development that, that we've seen over the past, you know, 20 years plus. So yeah, I'm very excited about this. And I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity and creativity that could come out of kind of these next this next iteration of how we build cities. I hope I'm right. <laughs> I hope we're not going in the opposite direction. I hope you're right too. And and the thing is, you know, you bring in a, a DPZ type unit. I, I think you also talked to the the Mike Lydon, Anthony Garcia, you know, street plans kind of groups who are doing the tactical urbanism, you know, Jason Roberts and the better block and that type of thing who are out there uh, doing what I think is the highest form of public engagement, which is the humble iterative demonstration project and getting real, you know, live feedback from real humans out using these spaces as they go. You know, to me, the, the, the practice has a chance here to evolve in ways that I think could really help humanity for a, a long, long time. And, and, and I'm not going to pretend that this will solve, you know, the, the racist underpinnings of some of these past decisions or heal all wounds or fix all things. But I, I think it can put us in a trajectory where we can start to close some of those gaps and, and where I think allow the better instincts of humans to come to the fore as opposed to what I think has been kind of a, just a destructive machine that we've been living with for the past, you know, almost three generations now. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned the better block people and people doing that kind of work because personally, I consider that to be a form of art, what they're doing. I think it is a form of like civic art, whether, you know, they're not necessarily making a painting, but the way that they're engaging with their city, I consider to be, I consider them to be artists. And I think that it's really incredible to be able to kind of mix these worlds together and actually actually impact cities in ways that are 
inspiring and creative and interesting. I don't think anybody wants to live in copy-paste uh, cities anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think with that, we will go into the down zone and conclude this conversation. So the down zone is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything that's been on our mind these days. So Chuck, what have you been up to? Well, I last weekend just got on a, a, a kick and I was doing a lot of work outside in the yard and I went through two books. Actually, no, I went through three books last weekend just on audio. Um, but, but but I was going to talk about this, but then the most important one happened this week, which is the part six of the latest Hardcore History episode came out, which I just kind of had to stop everything and listen to that. Uh, and it, it brought me back to you because you talked about having me go to the World War One Memorial. This Hardcore History, the last six episodes have all been about the Pacific War and World War II. But Dan Carlin uh, mentions in here that his World War One experience, they, they partnered, Hardcore History partnered with Skywalker Sound Studio or whatever to create this like room you go into that gives you the feeling of being in the trenches in World War One. And guess where it's now located, at least for the, the foreseeable future? It's located in Kansas City at the World War One Memorial. There you and go. When it first came out, I'm like, oh, I would love to see this and experience this. And now it's there. So now I have another reason to go. But um, the final Hardcore History episode in this series uh, was, of course, just fantastic and uh, highly recommend all six parts to any, anybody who's interested in the war in the Pacific and, and a kind of a great human focused storytelling narrative, which is what Dan is, is best at. We will definitely make sure that when you come to Kansas City, we will go to the World War One Museum. And thank I'm you there. for reminding me because all week I was like, I feel like Chuck recommended something or there's something that I needed to go listen to. And it was hardcore history on World War One. So thank you for reminding me. And I'm going to make a note of that right after we get done here. That that was, I think, the best hardcore history series ever was the one on World War One. There's one off episode that is not like a fan favorite, but it's one of mine, and it's about the Reformation, and it's really a story of of this rebellion in Munster. But it's it's a lot about the Reformation, and it's so good. But uh, the one on World War One is is the best. I mean, I, I I've listened to every hardcore history episode, and and that series is so good. You know, be, because that that war was so human. I mean, there were so many human stories in there that, that were just different than anything that had happened in the past. And Dan does a great job of, of bringing those out. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to listen to that. So thanks for reminding me. So this week I've started reading a book that was actually recommended by Strong Towns and it's been on my list for a little while. It's called Seeing the State, How Certain Schemes to improve the human condition have failed by James C. Scott. Um, so, so of course, you know this book, but it's basically a critique of, of centralized top-down planning and how utopian visions and social programs throughout the 20th century have resulted in so much tragedy, even when it is well-intentioned. So I'm really excited about reading this book because it doesn't just cover um, examples from planning, but it also covers examples in so many different 
schools of thought and practices, which I think is very fascinating. And now that I'm thinking about it, it um, very much aligns with our conversation on freeway removal and so many other things that we talk about. I feel like the the key takeaway from that book too is what you what you just said, which is despite the best intentions, the whole idea of seeing like a state is recognizing that this like collective set of bureaucrats and policymakers and and you know decision makers and what have you um, will inherently because they're human have a series of of perspectives and priorities, and even if they are benevolent and even if they are well intentioned. Um, we'll have blinders on. I mean, we we just spent a whole period talking about the highways, which, you know, we can look at it and say, oh, these people were horrible racist. But I think if you read scene by a state, like a state, you will grasp that they actually thought they were doing good. Uh, they actually thought that they were improving the world for everybody. And sure, a few eggs need to be broken and, you know, a few things need to be nuanced here and there, but we're doing good for humanity. And you recognize later that, no, that's not exactly how it works out. See, it's a, it's a genius book. I would recommend it to anybody. I'm glad you're reading it. Yeah, I was actually surprised at how old the book is. I didn't realize yeah. that it was from like 1999 or something like that. So, you know, I, I can barely remember 1999, not to age myself, but it's, it's incredible that a lot of the things that he's talking about hold so true today. And you see it reflected in not only strong towns, but you see these kind of principles reflected in, in so many other in so many other people's books and ways of thinking about things, I think even like Nassim Taleb, you, you just see a lot of the same um, principles that are repeated throughout different people's work. And I think it is so important and it makes me a little bit pessimistic that it, it doesn't seem to be what we're practicing, <laughs> but hopefully that's um, going to change over, over the next generation or so. And all a branch, you know, philosophically, I do think that, you know, the people, the, the one person who recommended Seen by State to me was Seth Zarin. And Seth is a Strong Towns member from Rhode Island, uh, been with us a long time. No one would call him like an arch conservative. He's, uh, you know, kind of a left of center thinker. And, you know, th there's a recognition, I think, amongst certain progressives and certain left of center thinkers that is not a right wing reactionary, like we hate government, we hate bureaucracy, but it's a recognition <laughs> that like here, here are some of the limitations of collective action. And if we want to overcome them, like here's some things that we need to do. And I found myself becoming very sympathetic to that kind of series of, of thoughts because you can read scene by the state and you can conclude that state action is horrible and we should never do it. And really that's the wrong takeaway. The right takeaway is that we need more humility, more feedback loops, more bottom up initiated action. And, uh, you know, it, it's not like an anti-government trope. So. <laughs> you don't want to live in just a total anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there is a, um, I met someone a couple of weeks ago who described themselves as an anarchist and they're, you know, in some ways like a very pragmatic person. There is a certain like feedback loop where anarchy and, uh, and, and totalitarianism kind of start to, to cross and mix and it's very uh -huh. weird. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting world. It well, <laughs> I think we will leave it at that today. So thank you so much for joining me once again, Chuck. 
And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye-bye.